Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, which is located in your bulletin and in our church Bibles on page 750. Please stand if you are able as we read from the Old Testament. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall turn, shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. But those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days till the end. And you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Please be seated.
Before we uh, come to our study this morning, I wanted to say a word or two about Sam Lamison to introduce you to him. Uh, I was reflecting that um, Zach got to choose Tadeshi, the, uh, the rap singer, to come, and uh, I, for my part, have asked Sam Lamison, the, uh, the Bible teacher, to come. Uh, they're quite different people, uh, I might add. Um, I, Sam and I, we've known each other for about over 20 years. We, Barbara and I got to know Sam and Cindy when we were at seminary and in the first years of our uh, uh, being a pastor. And uh, I have uh, seldom met someone who is as pastoral or as wise or as gentle combined with someone who is insightful to the degree that Sam is as a Bible teacher. Uh, he is uh, the president of Knox Seminary, which is associated with Coral Ridge in Florida. And uh, his ministry has been marked particularly by discipling young men into teaching and gospel ministry. So uh, if there's any way that you can find time to come and listen to Sam uh, or to bring friends who perhaps are not Christians yet, who are interested in what the Bible has to say about the end of the world, uh, I do encourage you to. Uh, he is um, he's quite used by God, as I pray he will be uh, among us. Let's pray as uh, we come then to our reading this morning and to our study in the Bible. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water, thirsty one. Stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. Lord, that is our prayer, that you would feed us, that you would slake and quench our thirst, that you alone, who have the words of eternal life, would use these words to encourage us and to keep us keeping on in the faith that you have set before us. Lord, we yearn, Lord, to be your people together in this age. In Christ's name, amen. I think it's uh, fair to say that this has not been a great year for accuracy when it comes to predictions made about the future. Obviously, almost nobody predicted, uh, predicted that Mr. Trump would be in the Oval Office uh, as we speak. And a billion people did not die as a result of an asteroid collision, as someone predicted for May. And Europe, although less one member, hasn't become a wasteland as an elderly blind lady prophesied in Bulgaria that it would be. And Arctic sea ice did not entirely melt by September 2016, as experts had said that it would. So I was surveying this, and I thought, if humans are so bad at foretelling the future, I wonder if groundhogs are any better. So it turns out, Phil the groundhog, on Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, is usually correct only about 39% of the time, and that for his particular uh, vicinity. Uh, He's actually in competition with a colleague rodent in Staten Island, Staten Island Chuck, who apparently has a little more success in predicting the future. 
but uh, probably as things go, I wouldn't entirely trust the rodent population either. As uh, we've seen over these last several weeks, as we've been looking at these prophecies in Daniel, which make up the second part of this book, God's accuracy at not only predicting but revealing what the future will be has, even from our hazy vantage point, two and a half thousand years after these events, been perfect. Although there are parts of this prophecy that remain unclear, some things now, I think, are crystal clear, aren't they, as we look at these chapters. That Daniel, who has been hoping that Jerusalem will be at last restored and be freed from these devastations, has heard that she will not be. One of the great tragedies of history, what has happened to Jerusalem, and what Daniel is discovering will continue to happen to Jerusalem. And for the people of God, he has discovered that the exile will not be over when they return from Babylon, as Darius had decreed in chapter 10 that they can now do. It's not over. It's not over for us. We are still the people of God, exiles in this world, yearning for a city that is not yet ours. So in the years after the return, what do we find in these chapters again? Well, we find that four kingdoms are prophesied for Jerusalem. And a series of devastators are to come, even to the restored Jerusalem as Daniel knew it. And you remember, of course, that was the shocking news Daniel received, as we saw last week. Devastators will continue. But what will happen after these devastators will come to Jerusalem? Who is this figure that comes to Daniel in chapter 10? What does this chapter tell us, not only about the future from Daniel's perspective, but the future from our perspective about the end of history? That's what we're going to be looking at all too briefly this morning as we look at these final three chapters of the book of Daniel. So if you would turn to your bulletin, you'll have there chapter 12, and keep a finger in chapters 10 and 11 in the church Bible or the Bible you've brought along. That would be super. We're going to look, uh, as I say, briefly at these last 10 chapters and the three elements of the final vision given to Daniel. These three elements. First, the strengthener in chapter 10. Second, the strong men of history in chapter 11. And third, the secrets of the future in chapter 12. So, the strengthener of chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 1. Before we get to the question of who this is, I want to, you to notice for a moment a couple of facts from this passage. Take a look at chapter 10. Whoever this is that is bringing this message to Daniel, people around him have a weird double reaction to him. On the one hand, notice they, the people around Daniel, his companions, those who are with him, don't see anything. Nor does Daniel say that they hear anything. They don't hear the message. But a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves from it. This is not the last time that we'll come across this kind of reaction. We find it in the New Testament in Acts chapter 9, you may remember when Saul was converted on the way to Damascus, something similar happened. He saw a vision, 
And the people around him were terrified, even though they didn't share that same vision. And Daniel himself, who has described himself as alarmed and appalled, and even sickened at the content of these previous visions that we've looked at, now describes himself as robbed of all strength. Do you see that? Robbed of all strength. But this time, not by the content of the vision, but by the one who brings it, by the messenger. This is uh, my favorite part of the book of Daniel, if, allowed, if one is allowed to have a favorite part of Daniel. I remember when I was a boy uh, being so excited to have read this description uh, that you can read here in chapter 10. I remember I was with my grandfather and uh, read these words from the person that John meets in the book of Revelation because they're the same words. In the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, although I suppose this could be the way that all angels look, I was excited because I think it is the same person. This, if you will, is where Daniel and Revelation kiss. This is the moment of overlap. This is the identity of the messenger. John saw Jesus. And I think Daniel saw Jesus. It was Jesus in whose presence John fainted. It was Jesus in whose presence Daniel fainted. It was Jesus that touched John and raised him up. It was Jesus, I think we see here, that touches Daniel and raises him up. It was Jesus who now speaks directly to Daniel. And he tells him, fascinatingly, what before he's only heard third hand, now these words are given directly from the voice of the person who originally spoke them. Daniel, man, greatly loved He says it twice. Daniel, you'll notice, is not advised to be strong. It is commanded now that he be strong by this one. And Daniel is so, verses 18 to 19. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened. I think it's a picture of our Lord. And why does this messenger strengthen Daniel? Well, not, notice, because people like Daniel are the only ones who have ever deserved this, the heroes of the Bible. But rather, thinking about this, theologically, because of Christ's own work, these people, God's people, are his, as you are his. So I think if this was true for Daniel in Christ then it's true for you too. It's true for you. These words will one day be spoken to you. Faithful servant, greatly loved, as now they are whispered to you from the voice of God in the Bible. So if Daniel was greatly loved, then in Jesus, so are you. So Paul, do you remember in Philippians, he says this, I can do all things. And you should never stop there, of course, because that isn't what the sentence is about. I can do all things, Paul says, 
through, meaning by, because of, on account of him who strengthens me. It's true for Daniel, it was true for Paul, and it's true for us in Christ. And having come and strengthened Daniel, this son of man, you'll notice, describes fascinatingly his own struggle. Here's the reason that he's been delayed. It's not that Daniel's prayers have not been heard. They have. From the moment that he have reached out with them in the mercy of God, they were heard. And this messenger set on his way. But there's been a spiritual blockade by this being described here as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. I think this is one of the very few times that John Calvin in his commentaries is probably wrong. The context is the spiritual opposition of demonic powers. This is not a human figure. This is the holding up of angelic messengers. We don't know about this. We don't know really what it constitutes. We don't know what it means in the Bible where it talks about war in heaven or what weapons might be used or where the struggle takes place. But we know practically that it matters. A man called Gleason Archer, who's a commentator, wrote this. Jesus, he said, taught his disciples that they should always pray and not give up. There may be hindering factors of which a praying Christian knows nothing at all. Nevertheless, he is to keep on praying. It may be that he will not receive an answer because he has given up on the 20th day when he, like Daniel, should have persisted to the 21st day. Isn't that insightful? If this is Jesus, and I think it is, I don't know why he had problems getting through. People will say, well, isn't Jesus God? There should be no limitation upon him. But if there were limits for Christ in his pre-glorified incarnation as a man, perhaps there were limits for him within the spiritual battle he waged beforehand as God's Lord of hosts. We just don't know. Nevertheless, we have this wonderful picture. For some reason, I want to think of this in football terms. As my wife will tell you, I know no, next to nothing, at least, about uh, American football. I know a thing or two more about it, British soccer. But think about this in football terms. The angel Michael, the fullback, laying down the block. And this messenger, the running back, finally running through the enemy's defensive line with this answer to prayer, giving it to Daniel. I'll write a book one day on that. <laughs> if God is for you, it's saying, who can be against you? You know the way it is that we doubt the nature and the character of God and his heart towards us. The Bible is telling you God loves you. You mean far more than the world to him. And if you are praying, don't say that God has given up on me. Look with faith behind this curtain and keep praying that the strengthener will come to you. Second, the strong men of history of chapter 11 largely. One of the challenges in reading a chapter like this one is it doesn't read like a history book that any of us recognize. If you're going to read a history of the period, I want to recommend to you an excellent volume, The History of the Ancient World by Susan Weiss Bauer at William and Mary. She taught there for a number of years. Not only is she an excellent historian, but she writes somewhat rarely among historians as someone who has a very high view of the Bible. And reading her history of the ancient world, the question will arise, why doesn't the Bible read like one of our 
history books. Why aren't the important people in world history the important people in biblical history? I decided it's a bit like cheering on your kids' upward basketball game, if you know that. You know, if someone is to ask you how your children are doing in sports and how was the game and what were the plays and, you know, what was the spirit of the game and the success, probably comparatively few people outside your family are going to care what the score was and how your daughter played and how she may have laid up for a basket in the last 30 seconds of the game. You can say, well, it's not VCU or it's not Duke or it's not Cleveland. But nevertheless, it matters to you. And I think by a similar analogy here, when something happens to God's people, it matters to God. And the history of God's people matters to God. And so it's reflected here in the Bible is his own concern and love for his people over against the world. So verse 2, what do we read? A mighty king shall arise, and as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken. What was that? Well, that was the life and career of Alexander the Great. By contrast, we read in verse 21, a contemptible person shall arise. And then 25 verses are spent discussing somebody who is little more than a footnote in anybody else's history. What's the difference? Well, Alexander the Great had nothing to do with Jerusalem and very little to do with the Jews. He's mentioned here only to the extent at which a knock-on effect of what something he did affected the Jews. But Antiochus IV, this tin-pot bully of human history, this tiny, insignificant figure, did have something to do with the Jews. He certainly did. And thus, he is given this space here in biblical history. I'm going to offer a cursory view of what most scholars agree the history to be here. So hold on to your hats. We're going to make our way through this in fairly short order. I want you to remember this is about the Jews. It's not about all the peoples of history, and it's written from the perspective not not of a modern global map, but from the perspective of the Middle East in the 6th century B.C., So, after Alexander the Great died in something like 353 BC, his kingdom was split between four of his generals. It's a matter of history, and the Bible says, notice, not his posterity, verse 4. The kingdom wasn't given to his children because he didn't have children. And then we read the south in her strength, which is not actually describing the confederacy, but the kingdom of Egypt and its internal power struggles through to verse 9. And then the focus shifts, we'll show you the map here, to the north, to uh, that colored region there I put in uh, kind of red. That's the Seleucid Empire, one of Alexander's generals, came in time to have an empire of his own, the Seleucid Empire. And in verse 20 we read, this exactor of tribute, who's been identified as Seleucus IV. Why is this written about him? Because that's what the Jews remembered Here was this guy turning up one day in Jerusalem asking for money in the form of taxes. It's the same way of writing history as we might describe Neville Chamberlain as the man who was deceived by someone who gave him false assurances. And so Lucas's son was Antiochus IV that takes up the majority of what we read here. 19 verses 
all of this happening about 150 years after the death of Alexander the Great. By the way, most of this history historians uh, have to rely on the Bible for because there's very little else written about the period. And then we read, verse 30, that the downfall of this contemptible person, Antiochus IV, begins when the ships of Ketim come to him. Now, as it happens, we know just what this was and just when it happened, according to history. In the battle between north and south from uh, Jerusalem's vantage point, Antiochus got too big for his britches and decided with all the success he was having that he would take on the kingdom to the south. He invaded Egypt, and as he did so, in fact, just as he was about to step into Egypt, uh, he stood on a beach and he was met by an ambassador from an emerging world power. And the ships of Ketim turned out to be the ships of Rome. And the ambassador of Rome drew a circle physically in the sand around Antiochus and told him, warning him, before you step out of this circle, you will decide whether you are going to continue and face us and our armies or whether you're going to do the sensible thing and go home. First time a line in the sand is drawn. Antiochus decided that discretion was the better part of valor, and in a very bad mood, he set out for home. And along the way, he stopped and took out his anger on a city that was allied with the Egyptians, Jerusalem. He plundered the temple, he declared Judaism illegal, he executed anybody found with a copy of the law, he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple in honor of the pagan god Zeus, mentioned there in verse 31, and what he did then gave rise to what we know as the Maccabean Revolt. That much is history. What's described next is a general principle for the people of God in history, verses 33 to 35. Some of the wise Danielists shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. In other words, the wise, that is God's people in history, will experience not triumph after triumph, but sword and flame and captivity and plunder and exile till the end of human history. That's what Daniel, I think, is told, that this will be the experience of God's people through the ages that we will be in exile, that we will not yet have found that city which has been promised to us. Now, why is that important? It's important because the plan is not that you find your promised land here. I hope that will be a comfort to many of you, to those of you who've been disappointed, to those of you who have suffered failure, To those of you who've gone through great grief or tragedy, the constant encouragement and the encouragement given to Daniel is this. There will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. It's a picture of Christian history at its ultimate end. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. So the final picture that we're given of human history is that the church, and I think we've reason to believe from Zechariah that this takes place around Jerusalem, but the picture is really of the whole of God's people being delivered 
finally brought to their promised land. What is to be made of verses 36 through 45 of chapter 11? Well, it doesn't seem to be history, at least nothing recognizable, nothing that we can say, well, that's happened or that has. You know, people look in vain sometimes at the Bible looking for pictures of their own day. can guarantee to you that people this very morning are pouring over the Bible to look for our new administration within it or some of the shadows of what's happening elsewhere in the world. But the best guess we have is that this contemptible petty warlord of history, Antiochus, becomes the pattern for those who will be given leave to trouble the church through history, culminating in this final figure of Antichrist, who will find that his life and his arrogance against God will suddenly and unexpectedly be cut short. That's what we're told about the end. And you'll notice here the focus on time I don't think it's given so that any one of us might determine when these times are to happen, but rather that we might persevere through them. You'll notice what it says, that it's the people who persevere beyond that time to the very end of the days that will receive the blessing. And then we're told Michael the angel will return to deliver God's people out of that awful time. And with that, we take it Christ will return and history will stop. Then the dead, verse 2 of chapter 12, shall awake. Notice both God's people and those who have stood against them in this life. Both those who have stood with God and those who have put themselves apart from God. And this will be the only question that matters on that day as it does today. Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Is it? I want to encourage you. You know, it's very easy to agree with much of what you hear in churches and yet never do business with God. Never say to God, God, I've never done that. I've never bowed the knee before you. I never bothered in a way to take up what Christ has done for me and to make it my own. To confess my own sin and my own need of a rescue and to ask you for that rescue. Because that's what constitutes whether you're in the book of life or not, whether you've received that life, whatever your background or religion or non-religion has been. Have you made peace with God? Are you sure if someone to ask you today that you belong to Jesus Christ? That's the confidence that you should know that you have, that you belong to him. Because weak though we may be, we can know the one who is our strength, right, among the strongmen. And then very briefly, the secrets of the future and what to do with them. There aren't many knock-knock jokes about the end of the world, and this one is entirely unhelpful, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Knock-knock. Armageddon. Armageddon out of here. (laughs) So when you think about it, right, the reaction is understandable. It's a human reaction. If I know when things are going to get really rough for me, I'm going to use what information I have to try and avoid that happening, right? And I think much of the way in which the end of time has been deciphered has been a desire to remove the church from the trouble as quickly as possible, not necessarily something that we are promised will happen. 
But I hope we see, as we close this book, that that's really not the point. No, God wants you to be strengthened in the world he's placed you within. Some of the best words in the Bible, Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, We have not ceased to pray for you, for the church, asking that you might be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. Did you see that? Endurance and patience. He didn't say for all partying. (laughs) He didn't say for all affluence. He didn't say for all comfort. He didn't say so that you're going to get all of your prayers answered or all of your dreams fulfilled. But all endurance and patience with joy. That's the point. Not to know the future, but to be wise with the days we have. Not to escape suffering, but to be patient under it in the strength of Christ. Not to be restless and anxious and striving, but to look forward daily to our reward and our certain rest. How do you do that? Well, I think one of the gifts we're given is the gift of today. I don't know if you've ever thought about Sundays in light of eternity, but it has been given to us to start to rest within the Canadian rhythms of heaven and the place to which we are going ultimately. And we are to build that into our lives. That you might, on one single day a week, refrain from working, from houseworking, from yard working, and need I add, from homeworking, and just rest. This afternoon, to gloriously unproductive, to enjoy the things that are the stuff of that far future, to think on them, right? To be with those you love, to enjoy the words of God, to experience the works of creation and the work of creating, as you've seen in our glorious gathering space. And when you ask yourself why you're not at the office, or why you're not paying the why you're not fixing the fridge, you're not fixing the fridge at that moment, you can tell yourself, perhaps even in the middle of a Super Bowl game, because this is not my home, this is not where I belong, and I am practicing a little bit of what it will be like. That, I think, ultimately is the power of this book and Daniel's testimony, that through it all, do you see this? Daniel could go his way and rest. That's the picture of what the church is called to in this life. Let's pray. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. Amen.